We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. There's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Flavor Solutions. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. We're back once again with Flavor Forecast, looking at what's new, what's next, and what's possible. Like the weather, flavor trends change and develop and change overnight again, and we need to be ready to predict which way the wind will blow. We're joined today by a returning guest, Hadar Cohen-Aviram, McCormick's executive chef for U.S. consumers, and a newcomer to our podcast, Sonny Levine, who is a team lead of Global Direct Commerce. And today, like the 1980s girl group, they're going to be our weather girls when it comes to flavor forecast. How are you ladies doing today? So good. Thanks, Corey. Happy to be here. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So this is Flavor Forecast 24, is that right? Yes. Awesome. Wow, 24 already. I feel like I've done like maybe 10 of these so far, and I didn't even come in in the the beginning. But, you know, things, like I said, are always changing. So why don't we start how we always start? If you guys wouldn't mind starting with your introduction, tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to McCormick. And we'll start with, uh, let's go with Hadar first, because she's done this before. She can show Sunny the ropes. I hope I don't don't mess it up, Sunny. (laughs) I'm Hadar. I'm the executive chef for the U.S. Consumer, which means that I oversee all of the culinary activity that goes on in McCormick for, for that segment. My team is in charge of everything that has to do with the products that we have from ideating on new lines, uh, supporting existing products with recipes and anything that has to do with culinary applications and then innovation as well. And I was very fortunate to lead the Flavor Forecast Report last year. So that's uh, that's what I do here in McCormick. I came from a startup uh, background and a lot of different things in my background. I have a ton of very, very weird combinations in me, but I'm a marketer and a, a chef all, all in one. That's a lot of hats on your hat rack. So why don't we go ahead and kick it over to Sunny. Same question. Please introduce yourself. Tell us what you do and how you got to McCormick. Sounds good. Thank you, Corey. To our listeners, my name is Sunny Levine. I lead the global direct commerce function here at McCormick. So our direct-to-consumer and operator states across the globe, including product management, brand management, strategy, and operations. My background is in food science and food studies, but my journey has been all over the place. It's taken me from marketing at the Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute on the nonprofit side to digital commerce at Kellogg to the agency side over at Stackline. And for the past three years, I'm here to McCormick, where I have the privilege to be the product lead on our flavor forecast team. Wow. Again, very, very different hats to wear from start to finish. Why don't you guys begin by explaining what flavor forecast is? I know we've discussed this before, but let's have a refresher and just you know tell me what flavor forecast is and maybe some of the key topics we'll be discussing today. So the Flavor Forecast is essentially a global thought leadership platform for McCormick to really lead the way with flavor exploration and innovation. And what we do is we use this to really inspire our customers and tailor-make solutions for them in both flavor solutions, food service, and, and beyond. 
So we don't, you know, just look at flavor. We really look at the entire cosmos of culinary, its ingredients, its techniques, its cultural movements and influences outside of the kitchen that really, you know, might affect the way we flavor, cook and eat. And we use that to project to the next years. It's any place between 18 months and three years ahead. It used to be more. It used to be between three and five years, but the world is just, you know, changing so quickly. There's so many influences, so many things that are going. So we really picked up the pace and there's a good balance of low hanging fruit, which will ripen, you know, in the in the next 18 months. And there's some things that might, you know, come to fruition between, you know, two to three years ahead. We have more than 50 global members from China, Mexico, Australia to London to obviously the you know North American region. And we, we have a lot of different people on the team. We have chefs, we have flavorists, we have product development professionals and experts, we have scientists, we have marketers, we have so, so many different brains to really look at the trends from different angles so that we can have a really nice view, uh, kind of like a, a 360 view on things. Now, one thing to know is that this is the 24th year. We started in, a, in the year 2000s. It's really, really easy to count. So we, we started with predicting one ingredient or one flavor. Then we went on to flavor pairings, then on to cuisines. And really that kind of evolved over time. And lately what we did, we actually got it to a point where we were predicting almost like umbrella trends that have a lot of different things behind them. And it tells a story. So you can use it in a lot of different ways. And it explains a lot that has to do with how the world goes on right now. And it's really, really interesting to see the evolution and how we got here. We still obviously use it to, um, you know, to inspire and, and innovate. We also last year added one more pillar to our trends, which is the flavor of the year. So that is really not only to give people an, an opportunity to kind of be on this journey with us and taste the trends. It's really about getting in more people, maybe adding like a nice bow on top, a succinct messaging that takes this whole report and embodies it in a flavor profile that we can then share. Now, this flavor profile is something that we give as a global as a global trend. And then every single region globally can extrapolate that to then be meaningful and relevant to their own regions. Because I don't want to jump the gun, but let's say there's one ingredient that is that we predict will be the flavor of the year, it will react in different ways globally. We know that we as people eat differently in every single region. So, you know, there's going to be a way that it's relevant to the APZ region, a way that it makes sense to Europe, and a way that, you know, it makes sense for Latin America and North America. So we're very cognizant of that. We use a lot of global eyes. We use a lot of quantitative data, but also qualitative data to make sure that we have all our ducks in a row and that we're backing up our hunches with facts. So that in a, is an, in a nutshell is a, the flavor forecast. Wow. That's a lot to uh, calculate, take care of and keep track of. Thank you for that, you know, nutshell answer, really encapsulating things. Sunny, is there anything that we can add to that that you're thinking of? I think I would just say that as Hadar mentioned, this is our 24th edition. So if, if this were our child, right, it would have already graduated from college. And in the last quarter century, McCormick has also grown and developed as well. So the forecast has adapted to really become 
a holistic report, something that is resonating across all of our businesses, our brands and markets. So we're talking about our customers and we're talking about our brands. How does the flavor forecast help them? What information really are they looking at to kind of get the answers they need? That's a really, really good question. I think that there's a lot that has to do with understanding the new angles to look at things. Something might be very obvious, but then looking at it from a different angle that you might not have seen before might resonate with your demographics and your customer base better if you understood what's coming ahead. Understanding the influences, what is really getting you there, the reasons to where we're going and what the trends are pointing at can give you a really good just thinking process and some insights into how might you want to innovate in your space for your demographics. I know we talked a little bit in our, our the podcast before this, uh, not you guys specifically, but we definitely talked about how new experiences are are focusing and changing the forecast uh, of things to come. So people are looking at different ways to experience old things. Are, are we still seeing that kind of on the forecast here? Another really good question. I'll stop saying it now because you're only asking good questions. <laughs> so I think that that's a really good point. There is an evolution with every every year, every generation. You know, there's a lot of influences that are just, you know, impacting us as a, as a uh, you know, the world community. So there are different ways to experience. And with food, you know, it comes to a lot of things that, you know, might be related, may not be related, but, you know, even small things like we, you know, if you think about in culinary, that's not really a small thing, actually, but immigration, right? That might bring an entire new cuisine down the line to wherever it is that you are in the world. So think about a population that comes in and they have to reinvent themselves using the local ingredients, but their own flavor profiles that they're used to. That might determine what's coming up in that cuisine and in that specific uh, space. Now, in the past, it used to take a very long time to happen. These days, again, that's, you know, this specific example is not exempt from the fast pace. So these kind of experiences, these kind of influences, you know, they, they do happen quicker or faster than they did in the, in the past. So that's just one big, you know, one example, but there's so many other ways. Just, you know, even, you know, you can look at cultural moments. You can look at how, you know, much easier it is to get what was once considered a hard to get ingredients. You know, all these things really influence these different angles that you can, you know, look at in shaping up different experiences. And the creativity that this brings and the opportunity that this brings, especially to our customers, to ourselves, is got to be incredible. Absolutely incredible. Let's take that and and let's get into some details. Let's talk about our top three of 2024. What what are what's worth talking about at this point in time? So the trends that we found for 2024, we issued three trends and a flavor of the year. And again, the flavor of the year kind of like embodies all of them. So I'll just start by maybe explaining what what those are. So the first pillar that I, I'm going to tackle is sour power. I love, love, love this trend. If you, you know, ever watch any kind of cooking show, any kind of food documentary, you know that the fundamentals are salt, fat, heat, and acid, right? So if you think about 
salt as a flavor enhancer. Acidity, that's a crevability enhancer because in a way it actually makes your mouth water and it keeps you coming back for more. So, you know, think even about the last time you use hot sauce, right? Beyond, beyond the heat, you really get that tang. It m- makes you coming back for more. It adds brightness. And it's just that one single ingredient that can really, you know, make a difference. And what we found is that on menus globally, we found, you know, chefs kind of talking about calamansi, yuzu, coconut vinegar, but also fruits like passion fruit and, you know, bitter orange, tamarind and texture that comes from things like even finger limes, these little citrus pop rocks, which contribute to not only flavor, but also texture. And we found that, you know, people are starting to become uh, acidity connoisseurs in a way. They really name these different things because chefs understand and people understand, start to understand that there is more to acidity than just, you know, that acid factor. There's a really big range of flavors and, you know, actual additions that it can bring to the table. So it's really that mouthwatering concept that really can create that craveability. So that's what we're, you know, talking about when we say sour power. The next trend that I would love to hit is indulgence redefined. So that one is really interesting. I think that one is really all about the joy that we find in foods. And, you know, everybody has their, you know, their own indulgence. You know, I might like ceviche and maybe you would find ice cream as your, you know, your the food that brings you joy. But it really is about the personalization, the customization and the fact that there's no right or wrong here. It doesn't have to be over the top, you know, um, indulgent in a way that it is maybe, you know, has a high fat content or a high calorie content. It really is about what brings you joy. And that's what, you know, has we have in the back of our minds when we say indulgence redefined. So it really is something that feeds the senses and, you know, creates that that kind of experience. So we actually saw two things that were really, really front and center when it came to that. We saw nostalgia and we saw flavor maximalism or food maximalism. So that was really all about, you know, maximalism is in a way a way to very thoughtfully and intentionally layer flavors and textures in a way that would create not only a celebration for the senses again, but also create those that really personalization, customization in a way to really celebrate each and every meal. And from a nostalgia standpoint, that's really interesting because it's all about trying to capture a positive feeling in time and translate that into food. It comes in a few different ways. So if you actually tried something in the past and you want to maybe try it in a modern take or in an evolved way, that's nostalgic. But there's also the retro portion where, you know, it's the curiosity of trying something you haven't had before, but you are curious because it did create that really positive feeling and it's something that you really want to try. So we have the retro and the nostalgic all made into one trend, which is nostalgia, because it's always, no matter if it's, you know, if you tried it in the past or you're just curious to taste it, you have this pillar that creates that combination that's a new modern take on an old classic or a favorite that you want to, you know, see in time. The last trend that I would also, I would love for Sunny to dig into that too, because she has so much to say when it comes to that, 
is thoughtfully borrowed, which is a new way to fusion. If you think about fusion, it really is rooted in artistic roots. So say a chef would come in, they really are interested in Italian cuisine and maybe, you know, Mediterranean cuisine, which are very related. So maybe not the best example, but they would just take them and, you know, create a menu. It would have been delicious. It is rooted in artistic reasons. What we are talking about, Thoughtfully Borrowed, is more around the accumulation of lived experience, skill set, heritage, authenticity. It's about you bringing yourself to the plate and using everything that you know to create a new dish. So think about two distinct cuisines that come together, are true to the person who is cooking them, and you still can very clearly identify these two cuisines, but they make for one cohesive, delicious dish. So for example, take Japanese pizza. We saw that one of the cuisines was Japanese-Italian. It's really, really trending globally. It's one of those uh, global trending cuisines. Again, every region might have their own, let's call it cuisine mashup that, tr- that is trending. But the Japanese pizza is an example. The delivery or the execution is pizza, right? Very identifiable. You know it's pizza when it's being served to you. But it's made with this soft, rich in flavor kind of uh, milk bread dough. And topped with things like, you know, outside of cheese, maybe there's a shiitake mushroom sautéed in sake. So you have those Japanese flavors, but you have that Italian execution. It makes for a delicious dish, but it's still very much identifiable and true to, you know, and respectful to those cuisines as well. I'll sh- I'll shoot it over to you, Sunny. Yeah. So thoughtfully borrowed things that are is is really all about that that brand new definition of authenticity. So we are looking at background, we're looking at heritage, we're looking at lived experiences, and it really is more than what we would traditionally think of as fusion. You know, while fusion is communicating a combination of cuisines, Thoughtfully Borrowed takes it a step further and really asks why. Why are these cuisines pairing together? It takes into account the context and the influences that actually are driving the the sharing of techniques and the sharing of flavors across cultures. So we're seeing this driven by globalization, driven by international immigration patterns. Um, and we're also seeing it driven and helmed by a really new generation of chefs and home cooks. Right? These are the folks who are representing third culture cuisine, who are breaking the mold globally, capturing lived experience through some really new genres of flavor and combinations. And in the context of Thoughtfully Borrowed, right, we may not always be cooking traditionally, but we're always cooking authentically to our lived experiences. So instead of just, you know, combining cuisines and flavors for novelty sake or for a gimmick, right, we're seeing a much more thoughtful approach and we're approaching every ingredient with intentionality and care and respect for that cultural context. I will add something to that. I feel like to Sunny's point, I think it almost creates a new definition to authenticity. Because if you think, you know, authentic Mexican, what is authentic Mexican? What we're saying now, it's if it's authentic to you and if it's something that you're you're bringing to the play that is, you know, again, like that accumulation of, of all of those things we just mentioned, it is authentic because it's bringing, you know, you and your influences and everything that made you what you are to the play. I have several follow-up questions for you guys. What you've what you've said has really, you know, set some fires off in my brain. I don't know if you've been watching, but I, I'm, I'm writing as I'm going down. So can we go back to sour power for a minute? 
how sour are we talking here? Like how into sour are people? Are we thinking like, you know, warheads when, from when I was a kid? Are we talking like pickled herring kind of thing? People are, you know, being more into that. Like what is, is it varying by person? What level of sour are we talking about being is coming into people's interest and people's questions? I think it can come in many different shapes and forms. It can be a touch of lemon to just brighten up a, a beautiful broccoli dish, roasted broccoli dish. But it can also be things like tigre de leche, which is kind of like the the Peruvian liquid that you put ceviche in to cook, right? So that what actually cooks the dish. So it's pretty sour to, to be able to do that. It can only also be a different type of sour. So if you take lemonade and instead of lemon, maybe you use yuzu. So something that's a little different. So not necessarily the acidity level, but also the type that you're using to bring that extra layer of flavor again. So it's not just the acidity, it's the flavor that comes with it that's interesting. It sounds like a Zoolander term when you say tigre de leche, you know, which translates obviously to tiger's milk uh, marinade. Uh, but I, I love cool names like that. You know, I'm, I'm always down to try something new. I actually, I just bought a new shampoo and it's called Midnight Panther. And I was, <laughs> as I'm washing my hair in the morning, I'm just like, this is, this is a weird thing to be calling a shampoo. But let's, let's move on to when you guys went into uh, indulgence redefined. I, I don't like to use this, this term that I, that, popped into my head, but it sounds like guilty pleasure, like anything that, and, and not even guilty would be the right word. I think it would be anything that, you know, that brings you joy or that brings you some kind of emotion sensation that you indulge in. Is is that kind of what we're going for there? I think so. So for instance, what we usually do for the Flea Forecast, the global team of chefs is kind of deployed to take these themes and bring them to life because of exactly those questions is, you know, how do we really give a tangible example of what this is? And we developed about nine different recipes. We had so many more, but we can only fit nine. So to give you a couple of examples, we developed this over-the-top, really intentionally rich jerk braised short ribs over polenta and cheesy grits. So that is like your really classic. When you think about something that's indulgent, this takes, the you know, it's amazing. It's so, so, so rich, but it makes so much sense at the same time. So, you know, and the, the, the spin here is you would usually serve polenta with shrimp because it's a lighter protein. And so we will, you know, kind of lighten up the dish. But here we really wanted to hit in and hone in on not only the warm flavors of the jerk seasoning, but also the type of protein that we serve, which is, again, short ribs, so really rich over these already rich grits. So everybody was really craving that, you know, that flavor and really liked that dish because it is like, again, it's very intentionally built. And on the flip side, we developed some juxtaposed kind of recipes to show how you can still indulge in ways that maybe are not that, you know, uh, straightforward. So a beautiful composed salad. So like romaine, you have that crunch coming from romaine. You have a beautiful sour power enriched vinaigrette that has cilantro in it. So it's really nice and bright. And you have crunch that's coming from spiced nuts and you have some sweet potato fries. Well, not fries, but chips on top. All of these different flavors, textures, they just make you come back for more. So, you know, you have a salad and you have these rich grits. It, you know, they both make sense if they are 
you know, uh, delicious and you keep coming back to them, right? So, you know, ceviche is another example that we gave as something that, you know, to me, that's that's really indulgent. I would love to have that, you know, as like a, a 5 p.m. kind of like app with something. I'd love that. I think that's my go-to. So that's my indulgence. But, you know, someone else might find something completely different as their indulgence. So, you know, again, like all these different recipes that can be found uh, on the website for the flavor for- forecast are there exactly for this reason to to help people kind of like visualize what this might look like. And I can guarantee the next time my wife catches me with a bag of Totino's pizza rolls and nothing else that I'm just going to say uh, I'm totally doing my indulgence redefined for, for, for myself. Let's let's move on to, to another thing I heard, retro and nostalgia. Can you outline the difference between those two things for me a little more? And then nostalgia sounds like something I've experienced and am re-experiencing, enjoying. Retro seems like something that I hadn't seen before, but existed in the past and want to enjoy now. Is, is that the case? So there's two different definitions for retro and nostalgia. So by definition, retro is the immediative of a style, fashion, or design from the recent past. And nostalgia is the sentimental longing or wishful affection for the past, typically for a period of, or place with happy personal associations. So, you know, when it comes to product development and how do we see it in the food world? So there's a ton of signals uh, when it comes to that. You can see a lot of, um, I will actually give you an example from a recipe that we developed. We developed a cinnamon cereal drink. So like it's a cocktail that basically utilizes, you know, when you as a kid, when you ate like cinnamon cereal and you would get the bowl and that would be the milk would be the best part. So one of our chefs actually took that. She intentionally discarded the cereal, was left with, you know, just the the milk, uh, clarified it with some acid to to get the solids out. Just, you know, remain with that really nice, flavorful, um, let's call it buttermilk, butter water. I don't know, like just the the liquid from it and then added whiskey to it uh, and created this really, really nice, flavorful, beautiful cocktail from it. So if we're talking about actually developing products, I think developing against a specific individual feeling, it's kind of hard. So the key to launching a nostalgic product is really to target the cool factor of retro products or flavors that kind of feel nostalgic for some, but also feel cool and exciting for those who weren't part of that era that, you know, can maybe get a glimpse into that and kind of be in the know and kind of, again, like imitate that feeling or capture it within a product. I feel like this also kind of lends itself to that series of people who are always looking for things that were released at one time during, you know, their childhood and then want to bring it back. Like a good example would be Oreo Cakesters. They were out for a while. People really enjoyed them. And there was actually a petition to bring them back and and they're back on the shelves, which, you know, awesome, you know, for, for those who love that stuff. I think there's another petition for the McRib to be year round. And uh, I, I don't know how that one's going yet. But yeah, uh, your drink, the cereal drink, sounds very close to the cereal straws. Do you guys remember those? Like they had little straws in the box and then there was like a sweetener in the straw, but you would suck the milk through the straw and it would taste like you were drinking cereal milk, which as everybody knows is the best part of the cereal. 
Thank you for that example, Hadar. That's that's amazing. I, I heard one term uh, when we were talking about this, and Sonny, you said it, and you called it third culture cuisine. What's that? Yeah, so third culture cuisine, that's a term that was originally coined by sociologists in the 1950s. But a third culture individual is somebody who grew up in a culture outside of their parents' homeland. So third culture cooking, right, is often inspired by tradition or inspired by somebody's cultural heritage, but with additional interpretation or influence based on, you know, the culture that you're living in at the time or where you grew up. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to that thoughtfully borrowed too, I'm a big fan. First of all, my pronunciation of the word borrow is terrible. So if you hear hear it sound kind of weird, just blame my Northeastern upbringing. But I like I like to watch the social media that shows people getting just a general lunch, but say in a different country. And there's this one person that does a lunch service, and he, he's Korean. And this brings me to the the thoughtfully borrowed, where they're they're borrowing the the idea of pizza, but it's served in a hotel pan, and they're scooping it out with with a spoon. So it's all the ingredients, and there's some dough in there. But it, when they scoop it out, it looks more like a casserole and less like you know an actual piece of pizza, which I thought was you know incredible. You know, he scoops that out and then takes one single grape, which keeps me coming back for more to see how many grapes he takes. Awesome, awesome content with our sour pour and our thoughtfully borrowed and our indulgence redefined. But let's talk about the heavy hitter. Let's let's move into flavor of the year. I, I feel like in my head, I am picturing like just a pageant of flavors and like a bunch of people sitting down, you know, judging them on their their talent and their, you know, and what they bring to the table. So first of all, before we reveal what the flavor of the year is, let's talk about how it's determined. How do we pick up and say, yep, that's the thing to watch. That's the flavor of the year. I think it's one of those things that has to come from the team and has to be one of the things that we see during the discovery phase when we go out and get all of those signals and gather them. And it's something that has to be agreed upon by the global team, again, because if it's coming up and it's crazy, you know, popular in one region, but no one has ever heard of it in a different place of the world, it cannot be that flavor. It cannot be that ingredient. So what we really did was kind of take a look at everything that we we saw and identify a few things that might make sense. And again, the one thing that the flavor of the year has to do is to embody the entire trend report, right? We have to make sure that it resonates with all three trends that somehow, you know, it's something that you can point at to say this one, you know, this one thing, one flavor profile can really lead the way and can be used as an example because it's so much easier to wrap your head around an ingredient than all of these different trends, right? You basically tell the story of the report through that one ingredient, So again, for this year, it would have to be sour, it would have to be thoughtfully borrowed, and it would have to make sense for indulgence redefined. Now, without naming the flavor, can you tell me how this flavor meets each one of those criteria? I will try without revealing it, but let's let's do this. So first of all, it's a world traveler. It is an ingredient that was born in one place, but it actually made its way around the globe thousands of years ago. But it did, you know, originate in one place and now it's like it's a staple in other cuisines as well. And it's coming up in 
cuisines that are even different than the ones where he was adopted. It is sour. It has tang in it. It's sweet and sour. So you do have that extra layer of flavor that comes with it. It makes everything that it touches instantly more craveable. And then from an indulgence redefined standpoint, it can be the star of the show or it can be a supportive act. It can, you know, be, it, you can have it as a main flavor or you can have it in one of the ingredients to make something a little more interesting. So it really does play in all of those different ways. All right. I mean, without any further ado, I'll leave it up to you two, but let's go ahead and reveal the flavor of the year. Hopefully by now you've seen it, but tamarind is the flavor of the year. Congratulations to Terman. We'll definitely be sending them a bouquet of flowers. So let's let's get back into the detail. Where does it come from? How, how did we get here? What does it taste like and what's it in? Yeah, tamarind is our world traveler, right? It is native to Northern Africa, but spread and is cultivated across Asia, Africa, and the Americas. The edible part of tamarind is actually the tree's fruit pod. And its flavor is really lovely. It's really complex. It's sweet. It's sour. It's almost caramelly or raisiny, depending on how you process it. And it's also a cousin of the peanut, part of the legume family. And it's used in all types of things. It's a key ingredient in Worcestershire sauce. It's in pad thai. It's in candies. It's Indian chutneys. And as it connects back to our trends, we felt that based on what we were seeing in across markets and, and as we were prospecting for the report, for sour power, from a true flavor profile standpoint, tamarind connects right in there, right? It's bringing that tartness to whatever you're using it in, whether it's the star of the show or whether it's an ensemble member. Similarly, indulgence redefined tamarind's versatility really shines there. It's letting its flavor profile play into familiar usages um, just as well as new age takes. So it's it's just as at home in a refreshing sorbet as it would be snuck into a meat pie or a fried chicken marinade, and then thoughtfully borrowed as well. When you think about just the sheer breadth of cuisines in which tamarind is featured, from Nigerian beverages to Filipino soups, it's actually very impressive. International trade and colonization as well are behind the proliferation of the ingredient into all types of global cuisine, and again, the versatility helps it really shine no matter where you're featuring it. As we looked at tamarind, it was really important to add some numbers in because we wanted, again, to make sure that we're not just imagining this, that it's really actually trending. So a few signals that we got from the market is, for for example, in the past 12 months, Google Trends shows a rise in search for tamarind flavor profile. It's like a 300% increase in tamarind fruit, so 110% increase. There were more than 122 million views and 8,000 TikTok posts of tamarind in the last three years, with top regions being Mexico, Thailand, U.S., Canada, and South Africa. So you see it's really global. And then there's another really, really interesting little tidbit where the market value of tamarind is expected to almost double by 2032, reaching more than a billion and a half dollars. So all of these things led us to actually, you know, put tamarind up front as the front runner for the flavor of the year because it's not only showing on menus and these this qualitative data that we're seeing, but also there's a lot of support from actual numbers in the market. I just looked up a picture of it because I had not heard of it or knew what it was called. It looks like a giant peanut 
it's brown, it's cylindrical, it curves sometimes. And when you open up, there's, you know, nice, you know, flesh or pods in there, or excuse me, little things in there. And I, I knew I'd seen this before. And yeah, 100%. I mean, what a great choice, you know, to kind of grab something that checks all these boxes, but also is kind of like new to the untrained eye like me, but knew I had seen it before. So yeah, that's amazing. So how do we translate this? How do we take this and provide it to our customers and say, hey, this is the next big thing. Here's how you should try and get a hold of it or try and use it. So I'd say internally at McCormick, we have launched a product pertaining to the flavor of the year, the product of the year, if you will, ever since we introduced the flavor of the year framework. The idea behind the flavor of the year framework, right, was to develop something that was flexible, that had the ability to shift and come to fruition differently across different global contexts. And so for our consumer and operator divisions this year, we chose to launch a direct-to-consumer exclusive product and an identical direct-to-operator product as well. And we went through a hundred plus prototypes. I mean, our product development teams across divisions had a blast with this one. We branched off of all of the different cuisine types that we were seeing as part of our trend signals we took a look at the historical context and the the modern day context in which tamarind is used. We wanted to make sure that whatever we were bringing to life, right, was something that still felt true to the ways that tamarind is used across the globe, but also something that is versatile in a culinary context, is versatile in a home kitchen, is versatile in a back of house situation as well. So that's how we landed on that one consolidated blend. So we were taking a look at Indian inspired blends. So like a tamarind masala, we took a look at some North African like fish stews with like a tamarind and tomato execution potentially. And where we landed and our product of the year, our sort of North American consumer and operator execution this year is tamarind and pasilla chili seasoning. It's got a really lovely rich profile, but the sort of ultimate roots for this one are based off of the proliferation of Mexican cuisine and how Mexican cuisine not only fits into all three of our trends, but also is oftentimes, right, a big factor in that thoughtfully borrowed equation. And so tamarind is one of the ingredients, right, that went from Manila to Acapulco via the galleon train way back during the um, Spanish colonial period in the Philippines. And so we thought, let's take this execution, you know, let's let's bring some heat into the equation, um, Pasilla actually translates to like little raisin or like raisinette. And we wanted something that was going to complement the natural flavor profile of tamarind. So that sort of smoky, dark, raisiny note, but also that was going to be a skew that was applicable across different culinary contexts. Sunny, this kind of sounds like it hits a little close to home for you. You're mentioning a lot of, you, you know, your your roots and your your ethnicities here is this it, did this you know play into your i mean your strengths your wheelhouse you, it seems like you knew a lot about it before it was declared yeah i would say you know i'm i'm lucky to have grown up with tamarind as a flavor profile that's familiar to me i would say also it's exciting to be working internally at mccormick but also have you know the upbringing the background that i have as a third culture kid so i was exposed to a ton of different cuisine types including you know filipino food but also i grew up in the midwest you know, so I was eating Skyline Chili at a young age too, right? Where you've got cinnamon and chili, you've got all kinds of things going on. So, so taking an ingredient 
across contexts. And growing up a third culture kid for me really led to this sort of obsession or this fascination with the cultural context behind food and how food can really be something that allows us to traverse borders even when other components are not able to. So thank you for that, Sunny. I want to reach back a little bit to something I had questioned before that I think we have a little bit more information on, and that's how we can take the flavor forecast to, you know, back back to the bench, back to the consumer. Hadar, I think you had some more to say on that. Yeah, thanks, Corey. So I think generally speaking, the flavor forecast, if nothing else, is a great, great story, a really compelling one that is has, you know, it has global reach. It has so many legs in so many different piles and, and different verticals. So at McCormick, what we chose to do is to take the flavor of the year and create a seasoning, put our best foot forward and kind of take it that way. I think that there's uh, so many different ways where you can take this report and kind of, again, take a look at your consumer base, take a look at your customer base, see what's relevant from it to what you're doing. You might be, you know, finding so many different signals that might be applicable to your business that, you know, may not be specific to, you know, what we're bringing forward. So tamarind, flavor of the year, that's amazing. It can come in in so many different ways in liquid forms and, you know, on menus and products. There's so many different avenues to take this. And, you know, you might not find that you can actually act on tamarind, but maybe there's something else in the report that can help you navigate your way and make things more streamlined, maybe innovating, um, you know, on products that might resonate with your customer base. So if you take a look at these trends, I bet you can find something that fits different businesses. Well, thank you for answering that so succinctly and definitely adding more what more information for our picture here, definitely for our listeners. But let's do like we always do. Let's wrap this up. Do you guys have any takeaways for us? One, two, three things that we want our listeners to remember from this podcast. Next time you go out, take a look and see if you're going out for dinner. Take a look to see if you see on the menu a special acid being called out or maybe dare yourself to try something that has somewhat of a, a sour profile or a different uh, acid agent that you haven't tried before. Try to look at the menu if you see something that shouts out as like something that might be a new cuisine mashup that you haven't tried before. Sometimes those are hidden gems. Sometimes, you know, it's not necessarily an entire menu. It's one little thing on the menu that might be the star of the show for that night. And try different things and always be open to something indulgent that makes you happy, right? Don't apologize for it. Everybody's different. You can have your indulgence and, you know, it makes you you. And I think this report celebrates us as, as people having different preferences and, you know, different influences. And it gives a new kind of almost respect to our entire background from A to Z. Yeah, I would say my big takeaway is really just our report this year and in years to come is significantly impacted by all of the shifting global demographics that we're seeing, all of the connectivity, all of the increased information availability and ingredient availability brought out by technology in the digital age. And that those those factors, those forces are forces that are going to continue impacting the culinary landscape for years to come. So what we're seeing this year, what we're seeing next year, et cetera, 
as much as they are trends, they're also reflections of a change that is, is bigger that is happening in the ways that we eat. Awesome. Things to remember. Definitely. All right. My favorite part of the podcast is when we wrap things up. This is when I ask my my off the cuff questions, things I thought of, little little things that crept into my brain while we were talking. Uh, first one's really easy. It's your favorite nostalgic food. What is your favorite nostalgic food? I have to be honest, Corey. It's the McRib. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you know, I I can't I can't say anything. I I am definitely the person that that eats you know that kind of food too. And I can't explain why when I like things like there's there's like hometown treats. I brought my wife back to my hometown once. You know, I said, oh, we got to go here. We got to go here. And I, I had her try these specific set of uh, hot dogs that they're little little hot dogs that they have and they have the sauce on them. And I was like, this is the you know, this is the best. I love this. This is home. And she was like, nope, can't get down with that. Never going to try that. Absolutely not. How about you? Our favorite nostalgic food. It's a tough one. I would say Malabi, which is like a Mediterranean dessert based on rose water and cornstarch, to be honest. Uh, it's like a, it's a jiggly kind of dessert, but I used to have it as a child and it always brings me, brings me back because rose water is something that you either love or hate. It's very polarizing, but since I grew up with it, I feel like it's, you know, every time I smell it, it just takes me back and I just love that dessert. Rosewater is such an interesting concept to me. Just a, a bottle of of water that smells and smells like ro- I mean, just smells like roses that you consume, which always you know kind of throws me for a loop. But regardless, my second question is kind of based on you know flavor of the year. Now, when when you guys declare a flavor of the year, the flavor has to have some kind of of talent to it, whether it's you know something that's widely advertised or something that's not. And I have to confess that before I do any of these podcasts, I do look up the people that I'm speaking with to see, you know, a little bit about you and figure out, you know, what we can talk about, what we have in common. And I, I know for a fact that one of you has a secret talent and I, I, I know what that is, but I'm going to let Hadar go first because it's not Hadar. Hadar, do you have any secret talents? I don't know. I can sing. I don't know. <laughs> I sing well. <laughs> Good enough. I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. We don't have to do it right now. I'm not going to put you on the spot like that. Thank I know you. singers like that kind of thing. But Sunny, go ahead. Tell tell us one of your secret talents. Well, I will say, Hadar, I didn't know that about you. And this is adding fuel to the fire of uh, Flavor Forecast, the musical coming out in 2025. But my, I guess, not so hidden talent, um, I spent 12 years as a professional balloon artist to put myself through school. So when the pandemic hit, that was you know, pretty much the end of that from a professional standpoint, but it's still a hobby um, and still a way to kind of delight folks and their, their kids. So Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Oh, that makes me look so boring. What a great answer. I love it. I, I can smell a theater kid from a mile away, just so you know. And usually singers I can point out too, but Hadar, you caught me off guard on that one, just from my own background. But anyways... That's it for the Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucet, and I would really like to thank our special guests, Sadar Cohen Aviram and Sonny Levine. Thanks for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. Taste it.